0: Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. Hi, folks, this is Graham Brown with part three of my Asia Trends Report. So, the 50 Asia Trends 2018. And what I'm going to do is, I'm going to talk about what are the key trends in 2018 to look out for where Asia really leads the world. In the last two parts, we looked at the ecosystems, we looked at the financing of startups and innovation, we looked at entrepreneurship. Now I wanna look at a key part of the infrastructure. So the physical infrastructure and the digital infrastructure of these ecosystems and look at how Asia really is leading now. And we can see an example of this if we start at uh, slide 61. So trend number 37, this is uh, from a recent visit by Jack Ma to the US where he meets Donald Trump. And he explains to Donald Trump that Alibaba bringing the Tmall platform to the US will create million new jobs in the US over the next five years. And it's interesting, he calls it your know, cross-border e-commerce sales to China. And I find this fascinating because... Until this point, whenever you mention the word border, Trump is talking about a wall, but Alibaba, Jack Ma, is talking about building commerce and connection between these two markets. That's a real difference in attitude, and I think that's where Asia leads compared to the West. I mean, the West has really grown up with this legacy and has its issues, whereas China and Asia is really about looking forward And looking to the future and looking about how they can sort of connect all these markets together. So I think it's a very insightful start as to where Asia leads because Asia isn't really bogged down in history. Whereas the West has, unfortunately, you know, rather than build walls, Asia is focused on building bridges and all that talk about China stealing our jobs. Well, here you go is a a Chinese entrepreneur who's doing exactly the opposite. So let's start by looking at infrastructure, which is really one of the the key areas where a lot of Westerners who go to Asia for the first time are blown away. And a lot of this starts with vision because to have any infrastructure that works, you need vision. And that is where, you know, you can compare, for example, the... uh, the infrastructure of asia with the infrastructure of the west and you can really see where a top-down approach to planning really works here for example is fukuoka which is a western city an outlying city in japan where really at the moment it's no more than a seaside city but the vision is there to turn fukuoka into a mega city into a hub of innovation in asia by 2027 so within 10 years to convert a seaside city into a mega city where else in the world do you see those kind of plans take place you just don't get that can you imagine somebody going to a seaside city in the US or the UK or anywhere in Europe and having the same kind of vision it just wouldn't happen there's too many component parts and i guess in a way top down planning works because you don't have to ask everybody what they want to do. You just sort of take it on board that you are going to represent the interests of the people. Now, good thing and a bad thing. In many cases, it works to the positive, especially when it comes to these FBI projects, these effing big infrastructure projects, which basically are projects which, on a scale which you will not see in the West. Trains, bridges all the kind of infrastructure necessary to connect ecosystems together. The reason why Asia has an advantage in building out these projects is because it requires a top-down approach. You need to be able to get things done. And in some ways, you need to be able to, choose my words carefully, bypass the needs of some constituents to get things done. You know, everybody has an interest in a democracy and that can be a good thing and a bad thing. And when it comes to infrastructure projects, that can be a bad thing. In a top-down approach, everything is supposedly done in the common interest and that can work when you're building out a train line, etc., or building a bridge. So the longest bridge in the world between Hong Kong and Macau opens in 2018. And it's a 57 kilometer bridge I can't remember how long it is but connecting these two cities and this is part of this big greater bay project which I'll talk about in a minute but you're connecting two cities to do this you have to have a the top-down approach and be the capital resources to do this you have to have a lot of cash to be able to build this and the manpower to build this stuff you know thousands and thousands of people will build this bridge and it requires a lot of money. And what you don't want to disrupt this whole process is elections every two or th- three years, changing the the government or the mayor or the executive, and you know just you know we're going to stop this bridge now because it's costing us too money. You just don't need that. So to get stuff done, you just have to say okay, we've got a twenty year plan and we're going to build this thing. In many ways, that's why Asia is a lot better at. Getting things done and organizing things. One Belt, One Road is an example of this. One Belt, One Road is an initiative by China to connect the world effectively and make China the hub of that connection. Obviously, it's been sold on this old Silk Road myth, mythos. Not necessarily completely true, but you know, in the old days, there was a road that connected China with the Western world through Northwest China and through Central Asia, through Turkey, Russia, and so on. And the modern era, One Belt, One Road, is to build upon that, but also to build the maritime routes as well and build out through Southeast Asia. And what One Belt, One Road will do is connect all of Asia with Central Asia and Europe and parts of Africa, and really expand the reach of China economically and expand expand Chinese influence. Obviously, American hawks are a little bit wary about this project because it will give China a lot of power, economic power, and it will create interdependence within these states, which in a way is a good thing because it's building interdependence, not through force, but through trade and it's a very consensual approach to building an economic empire if you like rather than building it at the end of a barrel of a gun which was how we've done it in the west for centuries and centuries and this project will be uh a platform to to expedite 5000 billion dollars worth of infrastructure spend I mean, we haven't seen those levels of infrastructure spent ever. This will be the biggest project ever seen in the world. And Kevin Sneeder, who's the chairman of McKinsey Asia, said that One Belt, One Road is a very ambitious project covering about 60... 5% 5% of the world's population, so thirds of the world's population, one-third of the world's GDP, and a quarter of all the goods and services. So it's a phenomenal platform. It's a phenomenal infrastructure build-out. And it's just happening now. So you can imagine in 20 years how the, the economic landscape of the world and the trade landscape of the world is going to be very different and very much focused on China as the hub of that trade and that wealth And in a way, everybody will benefit from that. And we're starting to see this now. I mean, if you consider skyscrapers, tall office blocks, tall towers as symbols of wealth, and they have been traditionally, whether you agree with it or not, they've always been symbols of power and wealth in capitalist countries for more or less 100 years, starting with, for example, the uh you know the famous landmarks in new york like the empire state building in chicago obviously the two towers in new york as well but things are changing what were once the prerogative of america are now appearing everywhere else in the world obviously we have these two towers in the middle east but once you go beyond those the top 10 tallest towers in the world tallest buildings Seven of them are in Asia and five of those are in China. One is being built in Jakarta and one in Seoul in Korea. And what that tells us is that it's not just about being able to build tall buildings. It's about having the confidence to build these buildings and say, now we want to put ourselves on the map. We are, you know, we are putting our bid out there to be a world economic capital. So, you know, cities like Suzhou or Shenzhen or even Jakarta are now saying, right, we're no longer these backwaters. We are financial capitals and we are standing with pride in our own right. And that's our message to the world And people are picking up on this. You know, they're understanding that change is happening at a real pace in Asia, and that's attracting foreign talent to Asia. You have a look at how things have changed in Asia. Just really to summarize the infrastructure side of things. I mean, obviously, when we talk about change, it's very obvious to look at the skylines of places like Shanghai or Shenzhen and see massive change even within 20 years. I mean, if you went to Shanghai 20 years ago and you go to it today, you won't recognise the skyline. But I just don't want I don't want to focus just on mainland China. I mean it's happening all over Asia. Hong Kong is an example as you can see in the video version of this ebook, uh audio book, sorry. Hong Kong has changed massively if you look at the, the view, you look at Kowloon Bay, how it's changed within generations. Or even Kuala Lumpur, not obviously um, re- receiving as much attention as the mainland Chinese cities, but Kuala Lumpur has changed in 20 years since the building of the Petronas Towers. Kuala Lumpur, the landscape has changed beyond belief. And this is happening all over Asia. So anywhere you visited in Asia, let's say in the 90s, compared to today, will look completely different. And you can't say the same. You certainly can't say the same of Europe. And it's difficult to say the same of the US. So there's this real pace of change happening in Asia. So that's the physical infrastructure side of things. I want to look at the digital infrastructure side of things and rounding up the 50 trends. Look at the internet. Because in a way, the pace of change has happened so fast in Asia that now Asia is ahead of the world and until recently, that was the case only really in Japan and Korea and in small pockets and in small instances. But now it's really spread because in many ways, the digital frontier has leapfrogged the West. It's now a vital part of the economy in Asia. So the digital economy in Asia will add 50% of all new jobs over the next 10 years in Asia. It's phenomenal Statistics. So every second person in Asia, every second person, every new job will, every second new job, sorry, will be a digital job. Now, if you work in digital, that doesn't sound phenomenal, but you have to consider that digital traditionally makes maybe 10%, 15% of an economy. You know, if we live in that world, we think it's 100%, but you have to think outside of digital, there's a whole world out there of you know, infrastructure of real estate of food retail services banking etc etc government as well so the share of the pie normally for digital is only about 10 percent 15 percent in some advanced economies but in Asia in terms of job creation it's 50 percent of all new jobs a big part of this is e-commerce and this is a really interesting trend because Until now, if you lived in the West, your view of the world's e-commerce would have been eBay and Amazon, maybe. Those would have dominated. That would have been 80% of the mind share of e-commerce in the world. So to think that Asia was in any way a player in e-commerce was a little bit of a stretch of the imagination. Maybe you thought that they were buying ringtones on their phones or those games or those kind of things. But here's what's interesting, now as of 2018, China accounts for more than 50% of the world's e-commerce. So think about that, half of the world's e-commerce takes place in China, in volume. So all those arguments about, well, they don't have money, well, doesn't make sense anymore because 50% of the value is in one market alone. So, that is what's creating these, uh, these, these cash rich unicorns like Alibaba and like Tencent who creating these massive pots of cash which they're then going around the world like they go back to Donald Trump and saying we're going to bring our platform to the US and employ a million people. And importantly, they're bringing that platform to Asia. So a lot of these Chinese e-commerce platform players are now going to Southeast Asia. As we looked at the, I think, part two of the uh, 50 Trends report, or maybe in part one, we looked at the movement of risk capital outside of China into Southeast Asia. So a lot of that is e-commerce. So e-commerce players in China going into Southeast Asia, building out their e-commerce platforms or buying up local e-commerce platforms and then growing that up. So now expanding e-commerce in the rest of Asia. Uh, Mobile obviously is a big part of this. And this is... uh, Interesting in the context of the last slide, which was about e-commerce in Southeast Asia, as an example, mobile first. So how many hours do people around the world use their mobile for? By comparison, Southeast Asia, so Thailand, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, etc. are the heaviest users of mobile, mobile internet, I should say, importantly. 3.6 hours. Japan, which was one of the leaders back in the day, now down at one hour. But here, look, the USA, two hours, and UK, 1.8 hours. So in the West, if you take USA and UK as example, they use half of what Southeast Asians use in mobile internet every day. So what does that mean in the context of e-commerce? Well, it means that, A vast majority of this e-commerce is going to happen on mobile in Southeast Asia and Asia. And they're ready for it. They're not all, as was back in the day, um, on very cheap plans and all on prepaid. Even if they are, they still are accessing mobile internet at rates which are affordable. So Southeast Asia is a big growth story in terms of infrastructure and digital infrastructure in the coming years. And this Google uh, Temasek data that came out recently really sort of changed how people thought about the size of the internet economy in Southeast Asia. And it was growing a lot faster than people thought. And in this case, the ASEAN, so Southeast Asian economy, will grow from, you know, a forecast 4 billion, sorry, four yeah 4 billion dollars in uh sorry these are these are trillion dollars 4 trillion dollars in 2018 to nearly 6 trillion so there's a lot of there's there's a trillion 2 trillion dollars more of wealth creation to happen in southeast asia over the next 5 years um some more stats just rounding up about the digital economy the more stats about Asia and this is obscured unfortunately by the the image here but let me explain it to you in 2020 52% of the world's connections will be 52% of the world's 4G mobile connections will be in Asia so infrastructure wise digital Economy wise, mobile wise, Asia leads the world, you know, Asia is no longer this place where people are all on, you know, prepaid plans or spending very little a day, even though economically, they may be spending less, they have access to the technology, and they're using it far more than we are in the West. And that is a very important indicator, lead indicator for the growth of e commerce, globally, and in Asia. And just to leave you with two sort of very interesting stats, online video, and I want to end with one stat from e-commerce. So Online video in China is a real growth market, and particularly streaming. So live streaming in China is such a, uh, a hot market right now. And I think even though we're very familiar with YouTube and China doesn't really use YouTube, and it's blocked in most cases, that they have their own platforms and they, they're they very much into live streaming as opposed to recorded content. That market has grown massively. And one of the reasons why it's growing so fast is because a lot of these live streamers have connected their behavior with the ability to make money, whether that's sponsorship or receiving red packets or advertising revenues. That market has grown. If you go back from 2018, to even three years ago, it's about 35 billion uh, RMB to 2018, nearly 90 billion. So it's almost trebled, three times growth in three years. And it's it's growing at a pace as well. And I think we would see a lot more of this and that will grow even further outside of Asia as well, as well as that technology will be brought to other parts of Asia. And it's, it's a cultural thing as well. I think there's a real cultural growth, a real cultural driver in China as to why live streaming is popular because the kind of things they're live streaming are, for example, somebody sitting down and eating a bowl of noodles or somebody going to a hair salon. You know, it's stuff which you thought wasn't worthy of a live stream in the past. But really what it is, is we've got a whole generation of Chinese people growing up who don't have siblings, who spend most of their time working, who don't have a lot of friends and social connection, who live away from their family. And they're using this live streaming to connect with each other in the same way. We saw a lot of growth in the 90s with young Japanese, similar kind of input drivers culturally. A lot of, you know, Japanese uh, kids, teenagers who grew up in small families, not a lot of exposure to their parents, not a lot of friends at school, spent most of their time working or going to, you know, the, the Kumon, the the after-hour study classes, who would then use mobile as a way to connect in a world which for them was very disconnected socially. And the same is happening really with online video in China is that online video is becoming the de facto way of connecting with peers in a world which is very disconnected. Now, this whole idea about young people being this very connected generation is very untrue. They're the most disconnected generation of all, especially in Asia. And that's why they're turning to video as a way of rebalancing that lack of social connection in their lives. And online video and streaming in China is really at the tip of the spear of that trend. And I think we'll see that spread to the rest of Asia in coming years. And just rounding up, just one stat to leave with you from Alibaba, talking about digital infrastructure and how Asia really is ahead of the rest of the world. On one day, 11.11, which is called Singles Day in China, which is not really any more about singles, but everybody takes part. Alibaba, the e-commerce platform, sold in one day, $25.386 billion worth of commerce. And in most of it, I think all of it wasn't its own it was just a platform selling other people's stuff it was just taking the payments and like i ebay marketing the goods that was in one day 25 billion and i believe at peak in one second uh, it, the the peak of transactions in one second they did three hundred and twenty five thousand transactions so really hopefully that will summarize for you top level view of why asia very much leads the world in infrastructure we took we looked at physical infrastructure which was the bridges and the roads and the projects and the train lines where asia really has that advantage of being top down and now the digital infrastructure where you have a whole generation of people who are have access to the most advanced technology services 4g Um, e-commerce and they have the social drive to make this work that sense of loneliness if you like which makes the need to make these social services work more than just a nice to have as it may be in other countries it's a must-have and a key part of their their the social makeup as people. And that's why I believe Asia really will continue to lead the world, at least in the next generation, because it has both the the ability to get things done and the need to make them happen. That is my summary of part three of the 50 Trends 2018 report from me, Graham Brown at Asia Tech Research. And you can get this report for free at Asia Tech Research. Dot com as well as all my other reports on the Asian tech ecosystem. Thank you very much for listening or watching. I look forward to your comments and feedbacks. You can connect with me at LinkedIn. Details in the video or on my site. Or if you'd like to tweet a comment about this video, audio, you can connect with me at Asia Tech Pod. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.